You may be seated. Jesus one thing. If you had the opportunity to be in a conversation with the physical Jesus, what would you ask him to teach you? So when I was younger, I was a basketball junkie, and I would have asked Jesus to teach me to dunk a basketball. Okay, you can walk on water. Surely you can teach me to dunk a basketball. Then a little later, as I got a little smarter and wiser, um, after we got married, I started putting money away, and it was all about the future and retirement. I would have asked Jesus to teach me to be a wise investor. These last couple years, as I'm a pastor, I would have asked Jesus, teach me to be an effective communicator. Now, I think it's hardly fair that Pastor Brad gets to come up here every week, 35, 40 times a year, and he doesn't have the pressure each week to hit a home run. Okay, and so some weeks he can be so-so, like last week. Uh, you know, not his best work, but for me... There's the pressure every week to hit a home run. So Jesus, teach me to be an effective communicator. Recently, if you were to ask me or give me the opportunity to ask Jesus to teach me one thing, I would ask you, ask Jesus, teach me to be a better dad. Some of you are aware, you might have seen a little guy that's uh, trailing me around lately. A little guy moved into our uh, house this summer, and we're walking through the process of adopting him. And I've realized that with a, a little foster child, the margin for error, that there's not as much margin for error as there is with your own kids. And so you do something stupid with your kids, you discipline them in anger, or you don't treat them quite right, and they don't know any better. They, like, your dad, you're, you're all they know, but this little guy who's six years old never had a dad in his life, there's just not as much room for error. If you had the opportunity to ask Jesus to teach you one thing, what would that be? Well, the disciples had that opportunity to ask Jesus that same question, we're going to turn this morning to Luke chapter 11. I'll be teaching this morning from the ESV, and so if you're in the Version Bible, you might flip to that translation. But they had the opportunity to ask Jesus to teach them one thing. Now, these disciples had uh, followed Jesus for several years. They had watched him walk on water. They had watched him heal um, all kinds of people. They had seen him turn water into wine. They had watched him uh, heal a dead guy actually raise a dead guy to life, and yet the one thing that they saw in Jesus that they wanted to replicate in their own life was Jesus and his ability to pray, his ability to connect with the Father. And so in Luke chapter one or 11, verse 1, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus responds immediately by giving them a lesson. He gives them a pattern on prayer. And so this morning, we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 11, verse 2, and we're going to see Jesus' lesson. He's going to give them this model, this outline prayer. We're going to see a pattern for prayer in verse 2. Jesus says to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. So what is it immediately that we recognize about this prayer? It's the Lord's Prayer. Okay, and what do we know about the Lord's Prayer? Well, here's one thing I know about the Lord's Prayer. 
Everybody knows it. Okay, now this isn't the full-scale version that Jesus taught a few months earlier in Matthew chapter 6. But this is the same outline. In fact, maybe for the disciples, he had to dumb it down a little bit, okay, because they were um, having trouble with this. And so he, he gives them this, this pattern. I was, um, I officiate high school football. So Friday nights, I'm with a crew of uh, five guys. And last year, I subbed with a different crew. I was on a crew one week. They needed to fill in. And so on a Thursday night, I went out to West High. And these guys were rough, tough dudes. Um, b- before the game had even started, I'd heard a year's worth of filthy jokes. Uh, they had foul mouths, terrible language. And as soon as the uh, national anthem was done, but before the kickoff, these all guys all get in a circle and they grab hands. And they start reciting the Lord's Prayer. And here I am, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't be surprised by that. I'm stepped back and I'm like, what in the world is going on? Such a disconnect. Because when Jesus gave us this model of prayer, it was just that. It was a model. It was an outline. It was a pattern. But it wasn't something that was meant to be repeated word for word in any situation and that the more you repeat it, the more it covers. In fact, when Jesus taught this originally in Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, like these referees, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Some of your Bibles may even say, avoid vain repetitions. Because prayer is not about repeating the same words over and over and thinking that God is pleased. I want to illustrate that. I have a card here that my wife gave me. I carry it around in my Bible. And on the front, it has some words that are printed on it. It has the words love. It has the words cherish. It has the words always. When I got that card, I didn't even look at the front. I opened it up because I wanted to see what was written on the inside. I wanted to see the love letter. I wanted to see the expression of the heart. Now, I'm not going to share this with you. But I will tell you that it has the words twisted steel and sex appeal in it. (laughs) But that's how it is with God when when you pray. He wants your communication to be an expression of your heart. He doesn't care about the pre-written words that are on the front of the card. He cares about the handwritten words in the the card itself. And so to see these uh, patterns emerge this morning, let's walk through this line by line, phrase by phrase, and walk through this and see if we can see some patterns emerge. So first of all, Jesus says, when you pray. When you pray, that asks the question, when do you pray? I I would challenge you this morning that I don't think you're going to grow in prayer unless you discipline yourselves to say, once a day, I'm going to set aside some time to pray. No matter how busy you are, You need to find a few minutes to get alone with God. The morning is probably better before you start the craziness of your day. I love the story of Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the mother of the great theologian John Wesley. And John Wesley was one of 19 kids. And so you can imagine Susanna Wesley probably didn't get away to pray very often. But her kids knew if she took her apron and she pulled it up over her head, if they walked in on Mama and Mama had her apron over her head, it meant she was praying and to leave her alone. And so this morning I say if Susanna Wesley could do it with her 19 children, then what is our excuse? So Jesus said, when you pray, say Father. The word Father here communicates the idea of access. Let me tell you a story to illustrate this. So a couple years ago I was watching a rerun of The West Wing. And uh, I was enthralled with all things historical and the the White House. And uh, the scene was taking place in the Oval Office. And Shannon walks into the room and she says, oh, I've been there. I've been in... Uh, there before. And I said, well, man, that's pretty cool. I love Washington, D.C. Of all the places in the world that I've been, I've never been there. 
And she said, well, I'm not talking about Washington, D.C. I've been there. And I said, oh, you took a tour of the White House. She said, I've been in the Oval Office. It's like, you've never been in the Oval Office. She's like, yes, I have. I said, there's no way. People like us don't get access to the White House. We don't get access to the Oval Office. There's no way you were in there. And she's like, well, I was younger. I would have sworn I was in the Oval Office, but maybe I was just misremembering it. I was like, yeah, that's, that's stupid. You've never been in the Oval Office. So a couple weeks later, we're having dinner with her parents. And she says, hey, Mom, um, remember that time we went to Washington, D.C. and toured the White House? And her mom says, yeah. You remember your Uncle David, he was a police officer, and he had a roommate or a buddy from college that was in the Secret Service. And he pulled some favors, and we got a tour of the White House. In fact, you got to go in the Oval Office. You've, you've sat at the president's desk. Which point, Shannon turned around and went... <laughs> but here's my point. Nowadays, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you know. Nowadays, you are not getting into the Oval Office. It doesn't matter who you are unless you're able to call the president dad. There's only two people in the whole world that can call the president dad, Malia and Sasha. And we love following these, these girls. Uh, Shannon and I have enjoyed watching them grow up. They're the same ages as our daughters, and we think the president and first lady have done such a wonderful job of raising them in the spotlight. But they're the only two people in the whole world they can call the president dad, and because of that, they have access to the most powerful man in the world. Now, the Jews would not have ever thought to refer to God as father. It was just too familiar. It was too personal. But Jesus is countering that thought here by actually saying that we should refer to God as father. And so when we start our prayers by saying father, it means that if we're God's children, we can boldly approach the throne Okay, that's Hebrews chapter 4. It says we can boldly approach the throne. If we can say, Father, that means that we have access to the very throne room of heaven. So we say, Father, hallowed be your name. Now, I would be willing to bet that hallowed is a word that you have never used except in saying the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed, what does it mean? It means to be set apart. It's the same exact definition of the word holy. To be set apart, it, re- it implies reverence and holiness. That's why we teach our kids to bow their heads and to close their eyes when we pray. If you grew up in church like me, you know this area right here, these steps down front, neither side of the platform, we call those the altar. That's the altar. Why? Because we come and we get down on a bowed knee to recognize and acknowledge God's holiness. Notice that in Jesus' model, before anything is asked for ourselves, that we acknowledge God and His glory and His reverence comes first. So while we have access to Him as our loving Heavenly Father, we still have to come with the respect and an understanding of His holiness compared to our sinfulness and our brokenness. So we pray, hallowed be your name. And we say, your kingdom come. What does that mean? Your kingdom come. I, I will admit to you that every time I've ever prayed this prayer, I blow through this has very little significance to me. But man, we should stop and think about it for just a second because it's loaded with significance. Let me tell you why. Most people from their earliest childhood believe that they have the responsibility to set the direction for their lives. That some combination of genetic material and environmental experience, parental influence, choices made, people that we encounter, all of this weaves together to form this sort of matrix in which they chart a course for our life. We decide our own future We determine our own destiny. We plan our own way. But when it comes to Christ, that perspective once and for all is shattered. The person of Jesus Christ. If salvation is anything, it's a recognition 
that the sinner bows his knee to to the lordship of who Jesus is. It's a recognition that Jesus Christ is the king over my life. Your kingdom come. I have no agenda. It means that my dreams and my plans and my ambitions, I lay them up here at the altar into submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Jesus transitions here, and he turns from God's glory to man's needs. But we don't have to leave God's glory behind because we recognize that if God's going to meet our needs or supply our needs, that it's going to come from God himself. You know, this isn't um, some prayer where we're indulgent, where we butter up God in hopes of getting something. So when my daughters come to me and they're like, Dad, that's a pretty cool look right there with your dress socks and those flip-flops. I know what they're about to ask is they're buttering me up because they want me to take them to UDF and buy them some ice cream. And this is not what we're doing here. It's not like we're buttering up God as if to request some cosmic ice cream sundae with a cherry on top. We're simply recognizing that even our most basic needs of bread come from God and that we're totally dependent on Him to supply even our most basic needs. Then we say, forgive us our sins. Now, since I'm a pastor, this forgive us our sins part, I don't have to focus as much on this as the rest of you do, um, but the rest of you need to spend some time here, right? No, I'm kidding. In fact, Paul told Timothy, he said, um, God came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Then the apostle John said later in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, excuse me, he said, uh, if we say that we're without sin, that we're actually fooling ourselves and we're liars. And so we need to review the day before and confess our sinfulness. We need to be specific. We need to say, God, yesterday I, I punished or disciplined my children in anger. God, I had a lot of arrogance, a lot of pride in that conversation. I wasn't really truthful in that particular conversation. God, when it came to uh, that show, and I know I should have flipped the channel faster than I did, uh, I need to apologize and ask your forgiveness for that. You ever realize that we sin in retail? So all this list of things, but when we pray, when we confess, we confess in wholesale. God, forgive us of those areas that we have failed you. No, we need to be specific. We need to tell God exactly what we've done. We need to say, search my heart and expose these areas. I need need forgiveness. Don't sin in retail and try to confess in wholesale. It comes the hard part, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now, this is the dangerous part of that prayer. I wish it wasn't there, Um, but but it is, and so we need to pray through it. In fact, Jesus uh, taught in Mark chapter 11, he said, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. See, our forgiveness is predicated on our ability to forgive other people. And notice what it says in Mark chapter 11. It says, if, any, if anyone holds anything against you, forgive him. It doesn't say, if they come and say they're sorry, forgive him. No, it says, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And lead us not into temptation. Now, some of you are overthinkers, and you're going to say, why would we be told by Jesus to pray, lead us not into temptation, when James chapter 1 says that God does not lead us into temptation? So God does not take us by the hand and take us right up to the edge of sin and then step back and watch us, and if we fall off the cliff, he doesn't reach down with his go-go gadget arms and pull us back, or if we don't sin, he doesn't stand back and give us a polite little golf clap. No, that's not the picture at all. I hope there's no lunch ladies in here this morning because I have, um, I don't like lunch ladies. Okay, because I think lunch ladies are all mean. 
Uh, it might have something to do with they deal with all these little sinners all day long. But um, I had a lunch lady in first and second grade, and she was just a, a mean person. And so in first and second grade, we were still buying milk by these little cartons of milk, and it was 20 cents. And so our moms uh, would not trust us with two dimes in our lunchbox because we might lose one of them, so she'd give me a quarter. And all my friends, we got a quarter for lunch, and we'd take the quarter, we'd go buy our chocolate milk, and we'd get our little carton of milk, and the lunch lady would give us a, a nickel in return. That was our change. But every now and then, that lunch lady at this Christian school, she wanted to test us, and so she'd give us back a dime. And then she'd step back and watch us to see what did we do with the fact that we got too much change. And I remember my friends in first and second grade getting in trouble because they didn't report the fact that they had gotten too much change. See, that's not how God acts. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, we're actually asking God that if we're headed to sin, that he get in front of us and he stop and he wave his arms and, and says, don't come this way. We're acknowledging the fact that we're weak. We're acknowledging the fact that these are the areas that we're probably going to fall in. God, we need your help. Lead us not into temptation. And so we see this pattern emerge. And so it's real easy to review. Very simple prayer. When you pray, it means we need to set time aside. When you say Father, it means that you have access into the very throne room of heaven. When we say hallowed be your name, we recognize God's holiness and his glory. When we say your kingdom come, we're saying, God, I have no agenda. And then we have the opportunity to say, God, feed us, forgive us, and protect us. And so Jesus walks through this simple prayer, and then he immediately launches into a parable about prayer. And so we pick up this parable in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And your neighbor friend will answer from within, do not bother me, the door's shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. But Jesus continued, I tell you, though your neighbor will not get up and give you anything, just because he is your friend, yet because of your impudence, your persistence, he will rise and give you whatever you need. See, it's important to notice here in verse 5 that this man goes to a friend, not to a stranger. See, prayer is about deepening our relationship with God. That's why I need to go to him every day. So I can stay in constant communication with the Father. Prayer is speaking to God as if he's our friend. In fact, John 15, Jesus said, You are my friend if you do my commands. So there's going to be a direct correlation here. So listen, this is, this is deep. There's a direct correlation here between the power in pr of prayer and the legitimacy of your walk as a Christian. Can you get that? The more you obey, the more powerfully the Holy Spirit will work in your life. It's important that we come to God as a friend and not as a stranger. For over 60 years, the third Thursday of every May is the National Day of Prayer. And there's thousands of prayer breakfasts that morning and prayer luncheons and all across the United States. We gather together, we pray for our churches and for our nation and for our, our bosses. Yet in recent years, I'm going to be a little critical for just a second. In recent years, the Christian faith community... It's got their underwear all wadded up over the fact that the president doesn't share the same passion for prayer as we do. But think about this disconnect for just a minute, okay? I'm going to walk you through this. This whole passage this morning starts out with us referring to God as our Father. And it's based on our relationship 
with God as our Father that we have access directly into heaven's throne room. And now Jesus tells a story about a prayer, and it starts with a man going to a friend's house for help. You see, those that don't have a relationship with God don't have the same access. And so on a national level, why in the world would we expect our government to lead us in prayer if our nation doesn't have a relationship with God? I told somebody recently that we were operating uh, or living as Christians in a post-Christian culture, and they bristled. They got upset, and they said, no, we still, it was still a Christian nation. Here's my response to that. And ironically, this comes from a prayer that was prayed at a National Day of Prayer breakfast a few years ago. This pastor stood up and he said, Lord, we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it moral pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism and tolerance. We confess that we have committed adultery and called it an affair. We've endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have failed to love our neighbor because of the color of his skin and called it maintaining racial purity. We've abused power and called it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the airwaves with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our parents and called it enlightenment. Here's my point pastor had gone on and on, but here's my point. Jesus is teaching that we have the ability to ask things of God because we have a relationship with the Father. And based on that relationship with Him, we have access to the throne room. And the reality of it is is we shouldn't place such high expectations on our non-Christian leaders to lead us in prayer. There's no point in demanding a national day of prayer and that they lead us in prayer. Does that mean that we shouldn't be praying? No, we should take every opportunity. We don't need a national day of prayer to gather around the flagpole. We don't need a national day of prayer to get together with our brothers and sisters before work starts and to pray for our bosses and pray for our companies and pray that God would find favor on what we do. No, we need to look for every opportunity to take advantage of the access that we have from being in an intimate relationship with Jesus. Like this man in the parable, we come to God on the basis of our relationship with the Father. Notice in verse 7 what the friend says in response to this request. So the neighbor says, don't bother me. The door's shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. See, if this neighbor gets out of bed, you know how this works, right? If the neighbor gets out of bed, then the children start crying. And the children start crying, the cows start mooing, and the cows start mooing, the roosters start crowing, and it's on. And so he says, go away. But look in verse 8. Jesus said, though he will not get up and give you anything because he is your friend, yet because of your persistence, he will rise and give you whatever you need. See, there's two things to notice about this request. There's some persistence that's going on, and it's a bold request. So even though the friend says no, the neighbor still stands at the door and knocks. He's persistent. The word impudence in the ESV uh, brings to mind this idea of urgency or audacity, boldness or relentlessness. The New Living Translation actually translates the original language uh, using this language. It says shameless persistence. It means that we keep on asking and we keep on knocking. It's that picture of your kids in the grocery store that just won't let up. Shameless persistence. Don't give up easily. You might ask, well, how long should I keep praying for something? You should keep praying for something until you receive an answer? Or you receive a definite no. 
love the story of the great evangelist George Mueller. And he lived uh, during the 1800s. And every single day, he wrote a prayer in his prayer journal for a friend that was unsaved. Every single day, he prayed for this friend for 40 years. And after four decades, this friend finally accepted Jesus Christ because George Mueller kept on knocking. See, this was an unreasonable request to go in the middle of the night, to go at midnight to ask the friend, ask the neighbor for bread. He could have waited till morning, but because of his boldness, the neighbor eventually gets up and gives him exactly what he needs. Look at the point that Jesus is making with this simple story. It's a lesson here in contrast. It says, if a reluctant friend will answer an unreasonable request, then how much more will your loving Heavenly Father respond to a legitimate need? If a reluctant friend will answer an unreasonable request, how much more will your loving Heavenly Father respond to a legitimate need? And then Jesus, after talking about this parable of prayer, he makes this promise about prayer. Listen to the promise that he gives Let's pick up in verse 9, chapter 11. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So you're like, okay, does that mean that anything that I ask for, I'm going to get? Well, see, that would be a dangerous promise because then God would be a genie, right? Be a genie giving us, granting us our wishes. But he is saying that whatever you ask specifically for, you might not get that. But here's what he promises. He promises that the consolation prize is better than what you would have asked for. And so if you ask for something and you don't get that specifically, the consolation prize of what you get is better. Where do we get that? Verse number 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent or a rattlesnake? Or if your son asks for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, so that's all of us, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? See, when you come to the Father with the appropriate attitude, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit to empower you. And that's a better gift. It's a gooder gift. Okay, is that a word? It's a better gift, and the Holy Spirit comes and He empowers you. And it helps you deepen and strengthen your relationship with God. Helps you deepen and strengthen your relationship with other Christ followers. Helps you deepen and strengthen your relationship with your family. But have you ever asked God for something and you didn't get it? And then later you looked back and you're like, thank you, Jesus. I think there are lots of times that we ask for stuff and we can thank God later that he didn't give it to us. Shannon and I have reconnected uh, recently with some dear friends that have adopted five children and so we've been walking through some tough times, and uh, we wanted to reconnect with them and say, man, how did you do it? And each of these five children that they adopted brought a lot of baggage into their home. And one little girl in particular just, just wore them out. And she prayed every day, our friend prayed every day, she told us that God would remove her from their life, that he would take the pain and the agony and the baggage away. And God didn't. But you know what he did? He gave her an abundance of the Holy Spirit just to survive, just to get through each day. This is what she told us. Now, several years later, I thank God every day that he didn't answer my prayer. I can't imagine life without my daughter. Someday we'll look back from eternity and we'll thank God for answering 
our prayers exactly as he did. That's why when you pray, you'd better tack on an attitude and a verbal expression that says, God, not my will, but your will be done because you know a whole lot better than me what's good for me. Well, I had the world's greatest illustration to close things this morning. I was going to wrap it all together, I'd hoped. I shared it with Pastor Kyle, and he's like, man, Chris, really? That stinks. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't share that with him. And I said, well, Kyle, what am I going to do? I mean, I've I got to wrap this up. And he said, man, tell him your story. Tell him what's going on in your life right now. And I said, no way. It's too raw right now. I, I might end up crying. And he said, man, crying on stage is good. <laughs> I think he just wants to not be the only one that's ever cried from up here. But he said, tell, Chris, tell him your story. Tell him what God is doing in your life right now. And so I mentioned to you that we are walking through uh, the process of adopting this little guy. Uh, we started this process about a year ago. Uh, it wasn't something that we chased. Uh, it chased us. Uh, we weren't looking to add another person to our home. We weren't thinking that five was the perfect number. Um, but we started to fall in love with this little guy and, and his particular story. We started um, at the beginning of this year. We made the commitment to start walking through this. And we went through, I mean, you wouldn't believe what we've gone through. We're part of the local foster system. It's a foster to adopt. And um, we have filled out a mountain of paperwork. I mean, you just can't believe the amount of paperwork that we've given them. You can't believe the amount of classes that we have attended. You can't believe the amount of training that we've done. I'm now CPR certified. I can do, uh, I could shock you if you need to be shocked. Um, I can do it. Uh, We have walked through an awful lot. And this past spring, we began the transition of bringing him into our home. And man, we thought we were ready. And I think back to, you guys can probably relate if you have kids. You can think back to that time before your first child was born where you thought you were ready. And then the baby comes and it rocks your world. Turns you upside down. And that's where we're at. It's the hardest thing we've ever done. The stress on our family is overwhelming. The little guy brings a ton of baggage to our home. And we're not even going to talk about the specifics we've committed to not doing that because we don't want his life to be defined by this baggage. We want his life to be defined by God's grace and healing in his life. These last two weeks, we've reached a breaking point. We've lost our capacity We've lost our passion. We've lost our ability to continue on, on our own. I told Pastor Brad, I said, we, life is a teeter-totter right now. It's this teeter-totter where on, on one end is the compassion that comes from understanding the things that have happened to this little guy that drive his behavior. But on the other side is the pain that comes from living with the behavior. And you're like, a six-year-old, really? Yeah, I'm telling you. The pain is winning. If you were to ask me what my philosophy of ministry is, I would tell you this. My philosophy of ministry is leading people into a relationship with Jesus Christ where we learn to walk by faith, where we learn to do what we know to be true in God's word versus the feeling, versus chasing a feeling. So much, so many times when we counsel people, it's people that are chasing how something makes them feel. And last year about this, uh, towards the end of the year, we preached through this series in 1 John. We called it the DNA of a disciple. And, and it was my week to preach and we talked about love. And how love is an intentional act of the will. How love's not a choice. Or love is a choice, it's not a feeling. And those words rolled right off my tongue. 
so easily because we had such a good life. That's been turned upside down. We cry a lot. It feels unbearable. And at night, I grit my teeth, and I lean down, and I kiss him on the forehead, and I say, I love you, little buddy. And it feels like a lie because I don't feel it. There's no base, instinctual, biological love. I don't feel like loving him. And so this, we, we take turns at night alternating between who cries themselves to sleep. This brought us to a point of complete brokenness and vulnerability. And I've cried, God, please undo this terrible mistake that I've made. So this morning when I teach you what it means to pray, your kingdom come, those words don't roll so easily off my tongue anymore. It's because we've laid our desires and our ambitions and our goals down here at the altar. And when we pray, give us today our daily bread, we're only praying for today. We're not worried about tomorrow. We're not worried about the weekend. We're just today, literally, get us through to bedtime. Pleaded with God, take us back the way it used to be. So this week, a friend of mine challenged me. to get back in the Word. Get back to those passages of Scripture that God has encouraged you and comforted you in the past. And so I found myself in 2 Corinthians 12 this week where Paul cries out three seasons of his life. He says, God, please remove this. Please take this out of my life. And God responded by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so my testimony this morning is I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and in difficulties because this is what God is reminding me this week that I am weak, yet he is strong. A friend sent me this book this week in one of the chapters. It's become a prayer that I prayed all day yesterday. Bring me to the place where I'm more concerned about your glory than I am in my own relief. And this is what we want for you. We want you to be able to have access to say, access to the throne room by saying, Father, and to be able to come and lay your request down at the altar. But we want you to get to the place that says, Your kingdom come. I have no agenda. This is what we desire for you. This is why we teach you this. So I'm going to ask you this morning if you would bow your heads. message this morning we spoke to those that have a relationship with Jesus Christ by virtue of that relationship have access to the throne room of God but I want to change things up right now and just for a minute I want to talk to those in the room that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that don't have the ability to say Father I have prayed all morning for you I have prayed that God would send the Holy Spirit to work on your heart this morning. I've tried to teach what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and the implications of that and how it's so wonderful, how he gives you even more than what you ask for. Some of you this morning don't have the opportunity to do that because you can't say, Father. 
And so for those of you in this room this morning that can say that, I'd ask you to start praying right now. Would you pray for those in this room this morning who don't know Jesus? The law of averages says there are several people in this room that don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to pray for you this morning. And everybody's eyes are closed right now. If this is you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have not yet asked him to forgive you of your sins, if, you're, if you know he doesn't live in your heart right now, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you right now? this morning I thank you for this pattern of prayer that Jesus gave us of all the things that he could teach us what a wonderful area to to grow and to learn from Father the thought of being able to come into your throne room this morning get down on our faces and in our sinfulness and in our brokenness acknowledge your lordship in our lives and God for those this morning that can't call you by name I pray that you would work their hearts right now that you would cause them to be so overwhelmed by your desire to have a relationship with them they can't think of to do anything else except to ask you into their heart and God for those that are struggling and walking through tough times God, I can give personal testimony to the fact that those words don't roll off my tongue so easily to say, your kingdom come. But God, we also say, give us our daily bread. And God, we expect something greater and bigger and better than we can even ask or imagine. Because your word promises that. And so God, strengthen us Help us to develop this discipline. But God, for these next few moments, I pray for those that don't have a relationship with Jesus, that you would allow them to come into a saving relationship with you this morning. In Jesus' name.